Hello and welcome to the first of a new year of Off Grid with me, Dave. And me, Void. It's your favourite Not Really About Crosswords podcast. Now, before the recording, as per usual, we took a crossword and sat with it in a safe place until it didn't feel quite so cross. And then we each identified a word that looked like it might lead us somewhere interesting and also chose one of the clues that we liked. You don't have to have solved this puzzle to enjoy this episode, but if you want to, this time around we've looked at Eccles' crossword from The Independent on the 25th of January 2023. That's puzzle number 11322. So if you want, pause us and go and solve it if you want to avoid any spoilers. Otherwise, onwards. And of course, crossword solving and the sort of trivia sharing that we're going to do requires general knowledge. So we'd better just check, do we have general knowledge? It's a delight to be here with you both. Great. Marvellous, that's a relief. So we have a quorum. <laughs> right, so before we move on, we're just going to read out our favourite clues from the puzzle. Uh, if you want to try and work out what the answer is, by all means do, or just ignore them and we'll explain to you later in the pod how they work. So, General, what was your favourite clue, please? Okay, the, the clue I picked out that I thought was very nice was eight down, which is Beckham, B-E-C-K-H-A-M, Beckham to tolerate playing occasionally. Eight letters. And you, Dave? Uh, I chose 17 down, which said, where you might buy Hoover for water? Question mark. And the enumeration on that was 5-3. What about you? I went for 16 across. Sugar, perhaps stored in hardened wax? Question mark. Seven letters. Took me ages, that one. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> All right, we'll come back to those. But now, General, you have picked a word out of the puzzle. What was it and why and what's it all about? Okay, yeah, the, the word I picked up as, as a jump off for a discussion was Oedipus. Now, quite a while ago, way back in the distant past of episode four of Off Grid, uh, there was a brief discussion of, of Oedipus in a different way, more, more to do with the, the Greek myth of the, of the unfortunate chap. Um, but yeah. I think also within that discussion, Dave, you very, very briefly mentioned the wonderful Tom Lehrer. I'm um, very likely to have done. I, yeah, I, I've got a big book of all his, uh, his music and, and all the CDs. So, yeah. Right. Well, I, mean, I, I, too, am a big fan of, of Mr. Lehrer. Um, have been since I was about 13. Believe it or not, he was, I was first introduced to him by uh, an Indian business associate of my stepdad's who was visiting <laughs> us. And he had this tape. He said, we've got to play this tape. got to play this tape. It's, it's great stuff. It's fun. And he put it on, and it was, um, the first song was Poisoning Pinches in the Park. And, and uh, I fell in love straight away and, and never felt fell out of love. So I just wanted to go off on a bit of a riff about, about Lehrer and his life. People being all confused. Oh, but look at that. Too many songs by Tom Lehrer, Dave's holding up a picture of. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, Speaking of poisoning pigeons, yeah. I remember hearing him say that he'd been really pleased to come up with one of the rhymes in it. And now I can't remember what it was. Uh, was it? When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide, but they all go for peanuts when coated with cyanide. That was the one, yes. And he said he was chuffed to have come up with that. And then he discovered that Stephen Sondheim had already done it previously. Uh, <laughs> I mean, My pulse will be quickening with each drop of strickening. 
he's brilliant at rhymes like that. Um, yeah. When, when you attend the funeral, it is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same to you. Uh, I mean, that, that's just a mark of his his sort of wordmanship. And um, mm. just to say, people who are confused, where I've got to Tom Lehrer from Oedipus, he imagined uh, the film version of Oedipus Rex not doing very well at the cinema when it was released. Sophocles' Immortal Tragedy, Oedipus Rex, of course. Uh, and uh, the reason it didn't do very well was because there wasn't a title tune. That Which the people, people could harm. Hum. <laughs> And make them therefore keen to attend the flick, um, and so we we, we both it. know the, the the dialogue in between the songs very well here. I think by the sound of it, I, I mean I, I love the dialogue between the songs as much as the songs. They're so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he's well known as as a brilliant wordsmith, but of course his his first life, if you like, was was in mathematics. Uh, he was a Harvard. Harvard taught, and he uh, and he taught himself at Harvard, at MIT, at Wesley University of California, all over the he states. Taught himself, yes. And didn't he work at Los Alamos as well at one point? Quite possibly, I think. Um, he he was all over the show, no, never flashy about it. He just uh, loved mathematics and and taught it. One of his later songs was a sort of Homer Simpson esque denial of the new way of doing maths. <laughs> Because they changed math. How can you change math? <laughs> Didn't he um, do a song called Lobachevsky, which was about a mathematician yeah. who about plagiarized other ones? Yes. Then no one else is working for age your eyes. So don't change your eyes, but plagiarize. <laughs> yeah, an, an old boss of mine said that um, you know innovation is good, but plagiarism's quicker. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he was. I mean, I wouldn't say he was a polymath. Um, there's certainly more than one stranger as well. And I made the cardinal sin. I said he was a polymath. No, because he's still he's with alive. us. He's still with us. He's 94. He was born in 1928. And as far as anyone knows, because he's quite a private guy these days, he's still going strong. Uh, just a couple of years ago, he released every single piece of his oeuvre from copyright. Yeah, so, he's, he's he's made them public domain, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. So we could actually now sing the entirety of Tom Lehrer's <laughs> output. Uh, we, would have, we would have no copyright yeah, bashes against us, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do yeah. like the bit um, after he's done, I think, which is it, um, I Hold Your Hand in Mine. At the end of it, you know, the, the applause dies down and he says, you know, of all the songs I have ever sung, that is the one that I have had the most requests not to. He's <laughs> yeah. full. There's full of wonderful quotes. I mean, uh, in the early part of his, the the famous part of his career, um, I mean, he sold his uh, his pressings of his record himself around campus, and then word gradually spread. And he said it spread slowly like herpes, not Ebola. Sounds <laughs> 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 nice. Um, and probably his most famous quote was when Henry Kissinger was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize, and and he said that was the day that satire died. Yeah. <laughs> but my absolute favourite quote from Tom Lehrer, apart from the, the many, uh, as we've already discussed, in, in between the songs, he said, uh, "If after hearing my songs, just one human being is inspired to say something nasty to a friend, or perhaps to strike a loved one." It would have made the whole thing worthwhile. <laughs> so, um, yeah, hats off, yeah. Tom. You're an absolute legend. A good egg. Yeah. yeah. And he retired from teaching in 2001 when he was well into his 70s. Mm. 
What a legend the man is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Tom Lehrer, that's L-E-H-R-E-R. Go and check him out, folks. We'll stick a link in the blog. Uh, Dave, what was your favourite clue from Eccles' puzzle? Uh, yeah, if you remember, the one I selected said, where you might buy Hoover for water, question mark. And it was 5-3. This was actually my last one in. <laughs> uh, I I picked it because it's a bit of a groaner. <laughs> yeah, a, a perfectly legitimate solving method is to wait until you've got enough crossing letters to guess the definition, and then see whether the wordplay can match up with your guess. And in this case, the crossing letters I'd already got from already solved answers gave me a blank a blank s blank l blank, uh, and this brings to mind the phrase Adam's Ale for water, if you assume water is the definition part. And then you look at those letters and you realise that Hoover, in this case, refers not to vacuum cleaners, but to a certain concrete construction across the Colorado River. Because if you keep all the letters in the same order and shift the word spaces a bit, Adam's Ale becomes a damn sale where you might buy a Hoover arg. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Void, what, what answer was calling out to you? I picked the word Moliere from the grid, mm -hmm. partly because I have just a vague memory of having read something by him a long time ago. <laughs> I, I think I saw one of his plays a very long time ago, like yeah, when I was in my teens, but I can't remember anything about it. Le Misanthrope. Yeah, quite the I, Nigel Hawthorne? Oh, no, no. This is very much an amateur production. Oh, I think I saw something with Nigel Hawthorne in it. Anyway, Void, carry on. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, the other reason was because I don't really know very much about him, so I thought mm -hmm. I'd have a read. And the last reason was that I remember a character in a sitcom, I think it was Third Rock from the Sun, being a Moliere bore and it any possible drop of the hat, they would try and turn the subject to Moliere. Okay. Uh, so I thought I'd have a go at trying to be a Moliere ball tonight. So first um, off, what was his name? See, I, that's the one thing I've looked up, so I've got that in front of me. I can tell you that. It's <laughs> <laughs> cheating. Yeah. Yes, of course, Moliere's name is not Moliere. Why on earth would you be so foolish to think that? His name was Jean-Baptiste Pocalin. And he was born in the early 17th century. It seems like he took the name from a village in southeastern France for reasons not entirely clear as to why he chose that village name. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was conjectured that he did it to avoid embarrassment for his family because he took the name when he was just starting out as an actor and acting back then wasn't a quite Frowned respectable <laughs> profession. Yes. A lot of people so, have done that. So yeah. yeah. So after a brief spell in prison for debt, he started out as a touring actor going around the provinces in France, writing plays, learning his craft and finding his style, which um, tended to be quite mocking and sarky. <laughs> that's not Saki the writer, that's sarky, sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> this touring went on for 12 years or so, during which time he started making connections and eventually finds himself in Paris, where through a bit of good acting, he manages to get the patronage of the brother of the king. And around this time, his farces start becoming more popular, including a couple called The School for Husbands and The School for Wives. 
which I think might be one I read, I'm not sure. I'm now going to have to go and read some Moliere after this recording to check. But the, the latter caused a bit of an uproar, apparently, for poking fun at daughters of the rich getting a very limited education. <laughs> and that meant Moliere decided, it, uh, well, he'd fire back. So he wrote the critique of the school for wives. And do you remember in a previous episode we mentioned in passing that Don Quixote got all self-referential in its second book and started yeah. talking back about this. Well, this play was a play where he wrote about an audience who'd gone to see the school for yeah, wives like, yeah. and then going for dinner and they were all slagging it off. Um, <laughs> but uh, of course, during the course of the play, he bursts the bubble of each of their arguments about why his play was rubbish and then <laughs> proves himself a genius. Which, you know, I like the hush button of that. <laughs> yeah, well, someone, if someone's going to, you've got to do it yourself, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. More scandal followed on, apparently, for, quote, excessive realism, unquote, <laughs> uh, and for his play Tartuffe, depicting mm-hmm. the hypocrisy of the ruling classes. <laughs> but having found favour with the king by this point, Louis XIV, and by not explicitly attacking the monarchy, he managed to ride out this storm. And one story I liked was that in the 1660s, he was asked to produce a play and a ballet, both in honour of the king. But finding out or realising that he didn't actually have a big enough cast in his troupe to do this, he naturally did what any sane person would do and combine them both into one performance. Uh, uh, luckily for him, these uh, comédie ballets, as they became known, went down well, uh, and he got asked to write 12 more of them. Create your own genre. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and speaking of creating genres, while he was writing these, he worked with a chap called Pierre Beauchamp, who was the person who codified the ballet positions. Okay. In ballet, you get like first position and second position, which define how you're placing your arms and your feet specifically. And he's also a chap who came up with a dance notation system. Hmm. But I wondered if you fancied having a guess at who was the most famous person to act in one of these comedy ballets. Oh, blimey. <laughs> I... Can I say no to that question? Because I have a good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't be bringing any. Yeah, well, quiet. Okay, does it help if I tell you that I've already told you? Oh, the King of France. It was Louis Catorz ah. actually acted in, I think it was three of these uh, comedy ballets. Well, I mean, I suppose our, our king's been in EastEnders, hasn't he? So it's, 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 well, it's a precedent. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. or, or was it Coronation Street? I can't remember, but uh, yeah. Much oh, more yeah, recently, Anthony Sher, um, mm-hmm. the Shakespearean actor, mm-hmm. um, I think he's died quite recently, which is quite sad. But just before he played Richard III at the RSC, he was in a production of Tartuffe. All right. He, he talks about it in his, uh, in his diary, and um, it's a very rude play. Apparently, uh, that the central character Tartuffe himself is is a bit of a clown figure. The subtitle is the imposter. Yes, and uh, at one stage in this production, Sher pulled a full moon at the audience <laughs> as, as Tartuffe, 
and they got a they got a complaining letter because there was a school in the audience that day. Um, <laughs> the drama teacher had taken them along, and, and the teacher was uh, wrote wrote a letter to to the producer saying, uh, "You know, my uh, young pupils were scandalised. I bet they weren't. I bet they thought no, they, they weren't. Yeah, <laughs> they thought it was hilarious. Yeah, but he, he, the teacher was scandalised, and, and yeah, on their behalf." So. Yeah. And and um and Anthony Sher writes in, in that bit of the diary that um they were very lucky. They uh they had a discussion about whether it would be appropriate for him to, to get his backside out in, in this production on stage <laughs> and how risky it was. And they thought he'd better wear some sort of um jock strap to keep things in and, <laughs> and away right. from the sight of the audience mm-hmm. because um the discussion went that, that bums are funny. Boobs are funny-ish, but willies are definitely not funny at all, and we can't have right. that. <laughs> so that's uh, what Moliere yeah. has given me. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought that that teacher should have known the nature of Moliere. A bit he really better. should have. Well, he, he would have thought, English teacher. He? he should yeah. have been so surprised. Yeah. Uh, so I'll finish off. A few other titles of his plays are... Oh, I don't know how to pronounce this one. Shamarel, Scamarel. That'll do. Don Juan, subtitled The Stone Guest, which made me wonder if that's where Danielle Dax got the title of her track on her Popeyes album from. I don't know. <laughs> it's an instrumental. Uh, the Misanthrope, which we mentioned right at the start. Uh, Love is the Doctor and The Hypochondriac. I think a... it was possibly the hypochondriac that I saw Hawthorne in, perhaps. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. It was during a performance of the hypochondriac that, ironically, he collapsed on stage from a TV fit, but insisted on finishing the performance and did, okay. and then came off stage, collapsed again, went home and died age 51. Mm-hmm. So, uh, R.I.P. Well mm-hmm. done, Moliere, for being a sarky so-and-so and, and getting away with it. Yeah. Um, I think that that's exactly why he's still well thought of, revered even in France today. He's buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, which is worth a visit if you fancy paying homage to him or other French notables, including Colette Chopin, Edith Piaf, uh, Oscar Wilde and Jim Morrison. <laughs> Those famous <laughs> Frenchmen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a pretty little cemetery. I went there once years ago. But yeah, there you go. Molière. Chapeau. Cool. General, what was your favourite clue? My favourite clue was uh, Beckham to tolerate playing occasionally. Eight letters. And I like this one because, well, the, the neat little misdirection. And the first Beckham that I think of is generally David, the, the goal he scored against Greece in 2002 to qualify England for the World Cup that year was... Uh, <laughs> One of my favourite moments ever. Then you think of his missus, possibly. Maybe you think it might be something to do with posh or anything like that. But it's neither of those, um, because the answer in this case is Brooklyn, which is um, the name of David Beckham and, and Victoria's uh, eldest, I believe, son. And the clue works uh, because Brook is a synonym of to tolerate. And then playing occasionally is the alternate letters of playing. L A Y. I N G making Brooklyn. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a nice bit of uh, nice bit of misdirection, nice bit of wordplay. The surface works well as well, uh, making you think of Beckham the footballer as well. It's yeah. very neat. 
Nice clue. All right, Dave, which word did you pick? Well, I picked out the word torpedo at 12 across. Obviously, I think when you see the word torpedo, most of us think primarily these days of the submarine missile. Mm-hmm. But that weapon gets its name from a genus of cartilaginous flatfishes related to skates and rays, and they're all part of a superorder that is amusingly called batoids. <laughs> really annoyingly, I couldn't find an etymological explanation for batoid, where that came from. Um, I, seems, it seems I, unlikely that it would be bat-shaped. I might guess it would come from uh, bathic, as in deep, because you used to have bathyscopes, which were diving bells, weren't they? Very good. Um, don't know, though. True. I mean, they are they are sort of bottom dwellers. They kind of bury themselves in the in the sand in the daytime and come out at night, trying to search for etymology. There is a Greek word batos, but that means a bramble. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, oh, OED, the OED has some this... rays have a little barb on the end of their tail. Uh, or am I imagining that? Ooh, no, you... Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, don't think so. I mean, that bramble definitely in the sense of, of blackberries rather than um, sort of prickles and thorns and things. Okay. Uh, so the OED has got this word batologist, which means somebody who studies wild blackberries. And it's kind of really, really useful word. Um, that's that's. <laughs> That's obviously a wild goose chasing a red herring up a blind alley, so I stopped going down that route. <laughs> anyway, you you think of skates and rays as sort of diamond-shaped, and as yeah. you say, with sometimes long, thin, whip-like tails. But the torpedo, which is, as I say, related to them, it's more of a disc-shaped body, and it's got a more traditional fish-type tail. But the common name of the torpedo is the electric ray. Mm-hmm. Because this is one of those electricity-producing and storing animals. Um, we all know about electric eels. And again, I love it when you read a throwaway line on, on, on Wikipedia that says something like, electric eels are not closely related to the true eels. <laughs> so it's like, the electric eel isn't even an eel. Oh, God. Um <laughs> But so yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different groups of fish that have separately evolved the ability to generate and store electricity, like a battery in sort of adaptive muscles. So I was looking up about um, about the torpedo. There's various species. I think there's sort of about a dozen species of torpedo, and they all live around the Atlantic coasts. So the the east coast of North and South America and the west coast of Africa and Europe and through the Mediterranean and up into the English Channel and the Irish Sea. So we do get some of them in British waters. Okay. And while the electric eels have got one long battery organ down the length of their body, the electric rays have got a sort of pair of kidney-shaped organs on either side of the body of sort of the head part. The the largest species of these torpedoes, the Atlantic, is called the Atlantic torpedo, and it it can grow up to about six feet long, mm. and it can put out a shock of up to two hundred and twenty volts, which they tell us is not fatal to a healthy adult human, but certainly enough to knock you off your feet. Hence, and do they use it as a defensive measure, or is it a catching prey measure, or a bit of both? Yeah. They well, they've got two different types of shock that they can 
administer. One is a sort of light tasering to uh, to ward off predators or potential attackers, and, and so as not to deplete their charge too much. But there's a much stronger one for stunning their own prey. Right. So, so the answer is both then. It's both. Yeah. Uh, after which they kind of scoop up the food with their pectoral fins. Or if they can get close enough to the prey, then they'll kind of wrap themselves round it and uh, deliver multiple shocks to kill it outright. Lovely. Yeah. So, hence some of the other names for these down the centuries, like numbfish and crampfish, because the name torpedo comes from the Latin torpore, to be numb or stiff, Ah. which also gives us the word torpid. Numb or sluggish. Right, and torpor. And torpor, yes, absolutely. Uh, and when you talk about batteries, when Alessandro Volta was first developing his, what became the Voltaic pile, the precursor to batteries as we know them, he was basing them so heavily on these kind of fish-type versions that he actually called it an organ. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like you had your little see-if-you-can-guess puzzle for us, um, I say there's about a dozen species of torpedo. I'm going to give you the English names of three here. Okay. Uh, and let's play Guess the Latin Binomial. <laughs> <laughs> so My so favorite. the first part, you remember, is the genus name. So that's torpedo. Yeah. And your task is to get the second part, the species part. Okay. Right. So the first one is the common torpedo. Torpedo vulgaris. Yes. Rather like so many other animals, it's torpedo, torpedo. Oh, <laughs> uh, but your 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 kind of playing with etymology is going to be more useful for the next. You, you've got uh, the small disc torpedo. Oh, so the torpedo mini something oid uh, mini circoid. <laughs> I I, I minuscule. I thought you were going to say mini disc. Come on! <laughs> Don't tell me that's the right answer, though. No, but it's very, very close. It is <laughs> torpedo microdiscus. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and the last one is the leopard torpedo. Um, now, come well, on, come on, crossworders! Uh, the leopard torpedo. Oh, what's a leopard called? Well, I mean, leoparded Leo Leopardis, but it can't be as simple as that. Uh, uh, spotted, no. It is torpedo panthera. Panthera. Oh, dope. Dope. Sorry, <laughs> panthera. <laughs> yeah, Should have got that. Just to kind of finish off, something I, I like is that the more episodes of these we do, the more we sense the. Um, fundamental interconnectedness of all things. <laughs> because I, I kept stumbling upon details that tie us back to earlier episodes. Um, thinking about the electric eels, they're a South American thing, and some of the earliest reports of those to reach Europe were from an expedition to what was then Dutch Guyana around 1800. Voice nodding. It was Alexander von Humboldt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he describes. Uh, uh, there's a wonderful quote here: the picturesque spe- spectacle of fishermen driving horses into a swamp to be shocked by the eels, in order that once their electricity had been discharged, they could be safely scooped up for study and experimentation. Yeah, I remember. Wouldn't you love now. to be a horse? <laughs> Not hugely. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> get to carry things around all the time and then you get shocked for your travel. Lovely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the last last bit, as I, I was then off down a rabbit hole, not looking just creatures that store electricity, but those that sense it. You think about how we've all done that thing of rubbing a balloon on our hair or a woolly jumper and then it builds up a static charge mm-hmm. and then you hold it near to your arm and it makes your hairs all stand up on end and you can feel the, the sort of charge in it. Um, yeah. Well, that, that sort of static charge from rubbing is called triboelectricity from the Greek word for to rub. And I'll leave it as an exercise for listeners to see if they can think of any other words that use that etymology. But you imagine that some animals might be able to detect electrical charges in that sort of way as part of their day-to-day sensing mechanisms, as it were, uh, of the environment. Well, sharks, you think? Well, I, I, I think sharks. Yeah, well, I'm thinking uh, our old friends, the bumblebees. They build up a slight positive charge in flight. Flowers have a... Ten pence a mile. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> flowers have a negative charge and the little hairs on a bee's body can sense that charge so when a bee visits a flower it transfers some of its positive charge and therefore it kind of neutralizes some of the flower's negative charge and this means that the next bee comes along it can sense that the flower's char- the flower loses its charge for a couple of minutes a minute or two the next bee comes along, it can sense that the flower's charge has been knocked out and it knows that someone else has just been there and the nectar and the pollen will be depleted. Ah. No point wasting its time. There's no point wasting its time on that one. Yeah, absolutely. So you're That's saying f- flowers are solar powered? They recharge their batteries? <laughs> I'm not sure I was saying that. But... <laughs> Michael? Yeah, let's, let's have the explanation for the one you picked. Sugar, perhaps, stored in hardened wax, question mark, seven letters. Yeah, this this is almost, <laughs> my, almost my last one in, last yeah. one in. Um, and yes, I needed the crossing letters to figure out that the hardened bit was going to be set. And I'd been trying to think of sugar. Is it glucose or fructose or is it honey or babe or sweetheart or something like that or or tate and lyle or whitworth's or yeah (laughs) any of those but none of those occurred to me and eventually i figured out that no it was none of those sugars it was alan sugar Mm. and alan perhaps was the definition by example indicator so we wanted the name of a particular sugar and that was stored in set so alan in set gives you sealant for wax question mark has the definition so yes well done Eccles you foxed me for a while nicely <laughs> well you've all had some lovely questions down your little rabbit holes of the jump off clues but how about a formal very serious quiz to finish off oh, I'd have worn oh, a tie if it was formal I'd have known it was if formal we must. But, um, yeah okay <laughs> okay um couple of them from from other clues grosser not as in green grosser that was the the homonym for it as grosser as in more gross mm-hmm. and the question is why would that be significant to a long expected party oh this sounds like a round britain quiz question <laughs> well <laughs> long expected party now that phrase is ringing a bell oh good 
do we need to look to a literary work that contains that indeed, phrase? Yes. Right, and it's Tolkien. Correct. Oh. I think that was Bilbo's birthday party. Not just Bilbo's though. Ah, Bilbo's and Frodo's. Ah, right. Got it. Now, because I was just thinking, I know this party, and I know that Bilbo was eleventy-one at this birthday party. Mm-hmm. In other words, 111. But I was thinking, but hang on, that's not a gross, is it? Which is 144. So why is he asking this question? But yes, that hint that it was Bilbo and Frodo's party is the relevant thing, right? Correct, yes. So, Dave, therefore, you should be able to fill in the missing bit. You don't want to make me do maths or. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's barely maths, it's just counting. <laughs> Can't remember where we were going. Yes, okay, so Frodo's the remainder of the of the <laughs> Yeah of, of the sum. So Frodo must have been thirty-three. He was indeed to make 144. And uh, Bilbo in his in his speech to the assembled hobbits causes consternation because he points out that together they make a gross and uh, that's considered an unseemly term in <laughs> the Shire at the time. Uh, that's that one. Nice. Um, I confess that although I've inherited a copy of, of Lord of the Rings from my sisters, I don't think I've read more than a few pages of it. Well, uh, the next time we speak, I, I expect you have fully done your revision. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a thousand odd pages, come on. Mm. It wasn't in the film, was it, that line? No, no, it wasn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, which version of the film? You know, uh, well, the I short version, the medium version, the long, extra long, the director's <laughs> cut, Redux. Should we go for another cl- another quick quiz question. Yeah. Twenty four down is red rum. Mm. Um, now, why wouldn't Stephen King be a fan? Well, this is a reference to The Shining, isn't it? Oh, we straight in there. Mm. Uh, certainly in the film. Was it? Was it something that was in the film but not in his book? It's more general than that. Not a fan of red rum. I know the the film reference, but I'm not exactly sure why Stephen King would not be a fan. Are you talking about the horse? Or... <laughs> no, not, no, no, not the horse. No, no we're talking about definitely the, to do with... the murder reversal of, of uh, yeah. the rum, message. Yeah, King hated the film. Oh, oh, it's thought, as simple as that. Yes, thought... yes. Thought that Kubrick made an absolute kibosh of it. Mm. Hated everything about it. In, in particular, um, the little boy who played Danny thought he was thought he was awful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, didn't like Jack Nicholson in it. I mean, my county for taste. Didn't like Kubrick's uh, pointing the camera down the hall and the rivers of blood and all that kind of thing. Just hated everything about it. And in the end, King made his own version of, what? of, of the film Shining, <laughs> um, which by Every else's measure is absolute border dash, and just stick with the Kubrick version. Thank you very much. I've uh, never heard of this uh, second version. Um, <laughs> well, you, no, you, no, no, you, not many people have. <laughs> you, you don't mean a re-edit of the Kubrick film? You mean a completely no, no, different a completely film. different version of the film entirely. Yeah, um, oh, wow. and everyone said, "No, mate, you stick to writing the books and let the filmmakers do the films." <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, he probably was a fan of though. With mm-hmm. respect to that film, the paycheck he got from it. Well, yeah, <laughs> surely. 
I would have thought so. <laughs> that I is not sure the bubble three elsewhere anyway, but uh, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing: if you're a writer and you sell your screen rights, you never know how it's going to end up. So unless <laughs> yeah. you're actually prepared to make it yourself, you just yeah. got to just sort of take the money and take run and, and green. Yeah. And one last clue might be a bit of a stinker. Back to dear Tom Lehrer. Um, complete the circle, I guess. In the elements, in the song, he crams 102 elements in. And at the end, he says, or sings, uh, these are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. And of course, many so others the question have been is, been, yeah. how many more elements have now been discovered? Well, I know <laughs> that they used to use placeholder names yeah, the sort elements of that they... and things like that. Yeah, because like yeah. they knew mm. that theoretically these elements could exist in mm. uh, certain forms, um, and then they renamed them. According they to were discovered source, the periodic table is now complete, and if uh, anybody does manage to synthesize the next one along, I'll have to write a new line at the bottom of it. <laughs> oh, really? It's full, is it? Right. It's full, yeah. yeah. It's uh, going to be it, something like another 20 or something like that, I would have thought. I think it's not quite that. I think it's mm, it's a total of about 118 now. So it's the, not about 118, it's exactly 118. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Any prizes for, for, the, for the ones that are not in Tom Lehrer's song? It's going to be Harnium, uh, Laurentium. Laurentium is the first one that was found or, or discovered after the writing of the song. It's number yeah. 103. Okay. Uh, where's Mytnerium? Is that in there? Uh, Mytnerium, yeah, is 109. Darmstadtium. Very good, 110. Oh, and there's the new ones. So there's Tennessine, Moscovium, yeah. Organesson, and oh, you're never going to remember all four of the quartet, are you? What's the other one? Um, Three out of four M Bad Void. <laughs> uh, the last of the of those four is Livermorium. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then that's and not one of like... the last four that was that got named. Livermorium's been around a while. There were four that were recently named. They might not be the last four numerically. Well, go, going backwards in number, Oganesson is 118, Tennessee is 117. Although that was the last one to be uh, synthesized and, right. and nailed down. Muscovium, you mentioned, Livermorium, Fleurovium, Nihonium. Nihonium, that's the one. Nihonium. Yeah. Um, so it's Japanese, Japanese, I suppose, one, yeah. Nihon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Röntgenium, as in X ray bloke. Copernicium, Cassium, Aurium, Seaborgium, Dubnium, and Rutherfordium. Yeah, no, those, those kind of older ones I should have been able to remember because I, I have kind of learned those in the past. Yeah. Someone did an updated version of the mm. elements song yeah. at some point, yeah. didn't they? It's probably been done severally. <laughs> Antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium. Oh, I'm not going to carry on, no. <laughs> oh, there's another little snippet that I meant to mention earlier. Daniel Radcliffe on the. Um, he, he appeared on Graham the Graham Norton show. show. Yeah. And, and, he, and he did it. He, yeah. he didn't sound the elements song. And uh, Weird Al Yankovic, the. the Canadian song, um, silly song. Paradist. Mm-hmm. Paradist, that's a good word. Um, he happened to see Daniel Radcliffe doing that and approached him to play himself in the biopic of... Oh, is that why? Yeah. Ah. Oh, wow. 
is a, yeah. apparently Al Yankovic is, as as we all are, a fan of Tom Lehrer. Tom Lehrer fan. Yeah, well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay, folks, this has been Off Grid. Thank you kindly for listening. All the details of this episode are at offgrid.tlmb.net, where you'll also find our archive of past episodes. So if you're a new listener, you can catch up on last year's ones. If you want to contact us, why would you want to do that? You'll most likely find me by typing Skirwingle into any search engine and picking any of the results that you get. And I'm at the void TLMB, similarly. Uh, you can check out a list of all of my crosswords, if you like, by going to tlmb.net slash blog and searching for MEVS, M-E-V-S. And for the ones I host on my blog, I also post videos explaining how the clues work. So if you're uh, fairly new to cryptics, you might find that helpful. General, uh, do you have any recommendations for us? Um, yeah, anybody who's interested in the history of the Guardian crossword in particular might want to check out Alan Connor's weekly blog from the 16th of January, because in that one, uh, Alan gave the floor to Mitt's crosswords, where he shared his research, going right back to the beginning of the pseudonym era um, of, of crosswords in, the 19, in 1970. Um, and it sets out when all the new setters came on board, how many puzzles they all set, when they retired, and a little bit of background uh, of, of all the setters. So it's 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 a fun fun journey through the history of the Guardian crossword. If you're interested at all in that sort, yeah, of thing. that's a great article. It was a link to that. Well worth reading. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for helping us out with your expertise, General. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Okay. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Off-Grid is a TLMB production. Thank you to Eccles for our crossword today, and thank you to the Trudy for our theme tune. Hello to our new listeners in the Dominican Republic, Benin, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Uruguay, Peru, and St. Lucia. Although we do have a suspicion that you might all be bots, but if you're not, hello! (laughs) If you are a bot or a human and you fancy leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Or you can just leave us a rating there or in any other podcast provider. Or tweet about us with hashtag offgridpod. That'd be lovely. See you all next time, folks. Cheerio. Don't think I've libeled anybody, so I'm I'm quite happy. Anthony shares bottom, I think. Like <laughs>